RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. Mission Log Supplemental, number 53. Getting to Trek. How to Build a Utopian Future with the Roddenberry Podcast Network. Welcome into this supplemental edition of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Ken Ray. John Champion is off doing John Champion things. Don't worry. He'll be back for Thursday's show, and you're actually going to hear John Champion in just a moment. So last Thursday, we brought you uh, the Mission Log panel that we did at STLV. And a few weeks ago, we brought you one of Larry Nemechek's panels from San Diego Comic-Con, Is Utopian Star Trek passé? Apparently, we decided no, it is not, because one of the other panels that John and I had the good fortune of being part of at Star Trek Las Vegas uh, featured the entire Roddenberry podcast network. The question that we have for this panel, how do we get to the Utopian Trek 24th century thing uh, that we all seem to think we all seem to want? So it was really exciting, first of all, to consider uh, this question, uh, which, you know, John and I certainly, uh, it comes up, I will say, in Mission Log quite a bit. The thing that was more exciting, though, was having every show on the Roddenberry Podcast Network represented on one stage. Unfortunately, not everybody from every show could be there with us, but representatives from every show were there, and it was... uh, It was great to have us all on the same stage. It was great to have fans of every show in one room. And it was great to consider this question. So, without further ado, I give you the Roddenberry Podcast Network panel from Star Trek Las Vegas 2019. Welcome to the D. Kelly Theater. Um, We are doing a panel today called Getting to Trek how to Build a Utopian Future. Now, this panel today is coming to you from the Roddenberry Podcast Network. My name is Allison Pitt. I'm the host of uh, Daily Star Trek News, and I'm going to be your moderator for the next 45 minutes or so. Okay, so why are we here? Well, we all want to get to Trek, to that post-scarcity society that Star Trek has shown us is possible and is our future. But how do we get there? So over the next half an hour or so, you're going to hear from teams of hosts across the Roddenberry Podcast Network uh, about what they think is the most important thing for us to do. Uh, hopefully there's going to be some laughter, um, hopefully not too many tears, uh, we'll see. So uh, the way that this is going to go is that I will introduce one show at a time. They're, they're going to have just five minutes uh, to make their case for what to focus on and then at the end, then we'll have some time for some questions and answers. So if you have any burning questions while people are up here, please hold them to the end. We've got a microphone, and then we'll take all of your questions at the end. Uh, so before we get started, I just wanted to read you a few things. This is a reminder of what it is that we're aiming for. So some of the things that Star Trek characters have told us about their version of the future, Deanna Troy in First Contact said, Humanity unites in a way that no one ever thought possible. When they realize they're not alone in the universe, poverty, disease, and war, they'll all be gone within 50 years. 
And Captain Picard in the same movie said, the acquisition of wealth is no longer the driving force in our lives. We work to better ourselves and the rest of humanity. <laughs> that deserves a round of applause, yeah. So similarly in the episode, The Neutral Zone, Picard said to Ralph Offenhaus, a lot has changed in 300 years. People are no longer obsessed with the accumulation of things. We've eliminated hunger, want, and the need for possessions. Um, and additionally, in Star Trek IV, that's the one with the whales, for any of you who don't know. Uh, Kirk, <laughs> Kirk is unfamiliar with currency, and Jillian says to him, don't tell me they don't use money in the 23rd century. And he says, well, we don't. Uh, so these are some examples of the kinds of the post-scarcity utopian that we're kind of aiming for, but uh, you don't want to hear any more from me, uh, so I think we'll go ahead and get our first team out here. So first up, we have Dr. Trek, Larry Nemechek, and John Champion from The Trek Files. Now this is a show that takes a deep dive into the history of Star Trek based straight off the documents and the memos that made it all happen. So they're going to tell us why we need to be honest about our past in order to take us boldly into the future. Larry, John. Hey, everybody. Oh, good. Look at this. Hello. Hello. Thanks, guys. Yes, so we've got so many folks coming out. We just want to dive right in, okay? Uh, so, yes, the Trek Files. And the Trek Files... We're talking about these forward-looking concepts. A lot of the rest of our podcast, brethren and sistren, are, are on topics. And you might say, the Trek files, that's like you're pulling Gene's dusty letters and memos and files out of the thing. But, you know, history is fun, yes. And a lot of us are history nerds. We get insight from history if we're smart about it. Now, it's true that saying he forgets the past is doomed to repeat it. So that's kind of the negative. We spin that around to the positive. You, if you embrace and understand the best, you know, the, the insight, the understandings that history has, has brought us, you're probably going to have a better time going forward. So maybe that's more of a, a positive Star Trek spin on it. So on the Trek files, yes, we have fun. We pull the, pe you know, we examine all these artifacts, these memos, docs, and, and letters from Gene Roddenberry, everything that they tell us. But what I like about the show doing it is that we're also there to gain insight for looking forward, okay? We're looking at all the treks that came after and, and really the, the, the general world around us, right? Um, and it's also about Gene's life as well as the shows, right? Because Gene's life informs what he put into Star Trek. Um, the story threads that go through all of those. And of course there were, uh, and to be true, he had some successes, and he had failures. He had projects before and after Star Trek. And many more hands, of course, touched Star Trek after he passed in 91, right? But it's Gene's DNA, right, that makes Star Trek Star Trek, right? And we have the debates, is it really Star Trek? Well, that can go on forever. But we are concerned with the concept, and that's what's fun about the Trek files. Now, so what we have... On the show, you know, we have the scripts and memos and letters and all that draft. So we have, we have letters, we have correspondence to Gene from Gene, to Gene from fans, from folks who worked on the show, crew and actors, and yes, other folks from outside in the world, uh, you know, the likes of Steve Jobs, uh, Arthur C. Clarke, uh, Paul McCartney, that kind of thing. So keep listening if you haven't heard them yet. But it's all, what we do on the show is all in the name of gaining insight. The history's fun, but we're trying to see what still speaks to us um, from, you know, Gene's words or his opinions or his 
replies to people back and forth in the name of insight for Star Trek and our world at large and, um, and getting to that utopia that we, you know, the Roddenberry thing, right? So we know that Gene could weave a good story. I mean, that, that was the job, right? Uh, but the more we dig into the legacy, there are definitely prescient words to be found among all of that fun. And even when we get into that 1970s, what we call the gurification era, Gene hitting the college lecture circuit, the ideas he was grappling with would sometimes seem ripped from today's headlines. So let's examine just a couple of ideas that we think are worthy of considering when we plan a roadmap to that Star Trek future. We'll go ahead and bring up the first one here for you to talk about, Larry. This is really, when we found this one, it really jumped out at us. Um, TV is a powerful medium, and TV has changed, right? In the early days, we talk about the commercials and the censors and the sponsors and all the effect that that had, much less that you had 48 minutes of story and 12 minutes of commercial or whatever it happened to be at the time. We've evolved from then, but so much is, is still the same. I love this, that uh, for all the power of television and all the optimism of television, Gene saw that it had the potential for enlightenment or abuse. Um, so in this 1972 letter, this is actually an early draft of an introduction to a book some of you may have had uh, called Star Trek Lives. It was really the first, one of the first behind-the-scenes uh, books analyzing the Star Trek fan phenomenon, right? Gene wrote the foreword to it. Um, and he looks at <laughs> the collision of um, commerce, art, and entertainment that we still grapple with today. It's, it's evolving. So, um, you know, today, more than 40 years later, the landscape has evolved somewhat. But he's talking about what could happen in the future um, you know, in the day, media is driven by advertising, still is to some extent, you know, money, marketing, just by getting numbers, eyeballs onto screen, clicks onto a YouTube channel, you know, likes on a Facebook page. So Gene was talking in this uh, bit, um, he's talking basic, and we've got hen scratch here, he's basically saying that if television can, you know, capture the imagination, it can be, the communications of the future can be this wonderful sharing. Stop me if you've heard this before. Well, we've got all the power and the information of the age. We can share art. It can, it can be global. It won't be a matter of material. Or that kind of power can completely be so vast that it's manipulable <laughs> by people who understand that kind of power, that information revolution has a darker side. And we have 22 seconds, I was just told. What? We have 22 seconds. 22 seconds. No. Final, yeah. final remarks. Okay. Right. Okay. Here, really quickly, I'm going to bring you to the second document, because here's the thing. Gene, as a storyteller, whether it was in the, the process of building a show or his own legend, this is a letter where he's talking about the demographic of Star Trek and how he is a minor celebrity in all of these places among lawyers and politicians and golf clubs, and that's all really well and good. But I, I like the idea that he's building his own myth. Now, there is truth in this. There is also some truthiness in this, and we need to take part of it with a grain of salt. The point is, though, that we have to be cognizant of telling our history the way that it really is and distinguish between fact and mythology. Gene loved to blur those lines, and fortunately, he was a writer of fiction and not of textbooks. So you can find the full document. We're, we're kind of out of time here. You can find it at facebook.com slash the Trek files. Thanks, guys. Hey. Thank you. Jump I hope there, we have everyone. many Trekophiles out there. Right. There you go. Thank you.
Right. So next up, we have Women at Warp, which is a show that looks at, yeah, whoop. Uh, it's a show that looks at Trek through a feminist lens. So we have Sue, Grace, and Jera, who are going to present on why we need to tackle social inequality if we want to progress to a Star Trek future. Hi, guys. So uh, does everyone remember that Deep Space Nine episode where Rom starts out by getting an ear infection and ends up by forming a union? So things could have turned out very differently if Rom was living and working under an American-like healthcare system. Uh, just imagine it. We already know he doesn't have sick days. Uh, but what if he was also facing a hefty doctor's bill for getting that ear infection treated? So he leaves it, he leaves it. He eventually faints. He, he gets taken to the infirmary. It's an emergency. He's going to get treated. But then at the end of the day, he's got two choices. He can declare bankruptcy or he can ask Quark for a loan. And I think we all know it would take him quite a while to pay that off. So, um, you know, we wanted to talk about some concrete policy things that we can start implementing right now in our society that would tackle social inequality and that we think are necessary to get us to a Star Trek-like future. And the first one of those is universal health care. Uh, in our view, uh, that needs to include uh, reproductive health care, mental health care. It needs to be culturally competent and LGBTQ plus inclusive. Um, so the clearest indictment of America's stratified healthcare system in Star Trek is the Voyager episode, Critical Care. In that episode, the Denali Hospital allocates healthcare resources based on a number that quantifies an individual's value to society. Reducing a life to a number is not super Star Trek value, um, but yet in our society, we do that, and the number is you, the amount that you're able to pay for your health care. Uh, so uh, in our view, we need universal health care so that we can all move forward together. As Allison mentioned, and as Captain Picard tells us, in the 24th century, the acquisition of wealth is no longer the driving force in our lives. That is, uh, for many of us, a far cry from our daily life. And so many of us have dreams of just being financially stable enough to pursue what we love rather than continue to work at a job that may be eating away at our time, happiness, and mental health. And not to mention the systemic inequalities there are in hiring practices, pay, and employee protections. So I think one big step we have to this utopian future would be a universal basic income. This is an unconditional grant given to every citizen, regardless of employment status or wealth, which would be an amount large enough to cover the cost of living for every individual. This has the goal of eliminating poverty and reducing income inequality, and countries that have implemented a universal basic income have seen that the program is less expensive and less complicated than traditional welfare, while also eliminating the poverty trap that keeps families trapped in poor conditions. For the citizens, they then have the freedom to wait for a better job, a better paying job, to go back to school, to leave a bad job without the fear of losing everything, to stay home as a caretaker, to save for a house. There are so many additional options when you have that financial stability. And for employers, they would have to deal with the reality that their employees have these options, leading to fairer workplace environments with better benefits. The places that have implemented a universal basic income already have found that most people do want to work, and there is no issue with the size of the workforce. But right now, too many of us, at least in the U.S., are motivated by desperation. We're too concerned with stretching every dollar 
to think about long-term problems and planning. It's in our nature to want to contribute to society, so maybe one day we'll all be expert scientists and artists and play three instruments, just like the crew of the Enterprise D. Remember when the internet was first a thing and everyone was freaking out about the unlimited potential of making all of the world's information readily available to anyone with total equity? What happened to that? Do you ever stop and think about how everyone, anyone in the Federation who's accepted to Starfleet has complete access to the full education of their choosing and no one has student loan payments? I think about that every month when I have to make mine. The main idea here is to take the world of higher education from out behind a paywall with working towards open source education. We've seen what student debt alone can do to an economy and how much monetary limits keep people out of uh, college education, to say nothing of the costs of pursuing an emphasis in medicine, specialized science, or higher academia. We'll have less scarcity for medical professionals in rural areas if it isn't only people who can afford to go to medical school who can become doctors. We can diversify the science field if the students aren't reliant on limited numbers of scholarships, and we can broaden the numbers of college attendees if the average student doesn't have to spend triple digits on textbooks. The information is all out there, along with the people who can use it. But the future is only as bright as we allow it to be lit in totality, and the knowledge is only as good as we allow it to be accessible. Thank you. Hey, that's Women of Warp. Thank you very much. Okay, so next up we have Wendy Roderweiss and Josh Kurtz from Shabam. They are the newest show on the Roddenberry Podcast Network. Shabam is a new type of science show that blends fictional stories with real-world science. Uh, and I'm not even quite sure how to describe what they're going to talk about, so I'm just going to uh, let them do it. Hey, everybody. Hi. So that's Wendy, and I'm Josh. And we're really excited to be part of the RPN family. And uh, uh, yeah, we'll, let's take it away. Okay, so uh, we're going to answer the question of how we get to a utopian future Shabam style. And the answer to that question, of course, is iodized salt. Iodized salt. Thank you very much. All right, so let's talk about iodine for a minute. So iodine is a micronutrient that is essential for our bodies, and we can't make it, and we have to get it from outside sources. So usually we get it from the sea, but in the early 1900s, they were realizing that there was a huge problem with iron deficiency, and people were getting goiters, and there were a lot of intellectual disabilities that were happening in babies. And so the Morton Salt Company added iodine to their salt. And the thinking here was, if we give people a really easy, cheap way of adding iodine to their diet, it can help prevent all of these horrible health problems. Well, did it work? Yes, it did. In fact, there was a huge study that just happened that said that the babies that were born after 1924 had an increase of a 15-point IQ in, in those areas where they were really deficient. So it really, really worked. But why are we talking about this? Uh, these people had this happen in a way where they didn't realize it was happening. It was just part of their everyday life. So one thing we like to do in Shabam is to connect two ideas that seem like they're not connected at all. And so what does salt have to do with utopia? Well, it's an analogy. And um, just like adding iodine made people healthier, we think that to get to a utopian future, we need to add more truth. 
And the way to do that is with scientific, more scientific thinking. We've got to add some more scientific thinking. So to carry this through, iodized salt added to people's diets fought goiters and these intellectual disabilities. And scientific thinking can combat things like misinformation, bias, poor decision-making, and really can help us on a road to more truth. But where do we start? So we're going to explain how we think we get there by using some clips from our show. We're proposing a simple three-step process that will help you figure out what's true and what's not, which will help you choose what to believe and what not to believe. But before we take those steps, we have to change the way that we think. And to do that, we need a tool. We're going to bust out a thinking tool, which we call our Mental Truth Probability Meter. The probability meter works like this. Instead of thinking about the world in binary, where things are either true or not true, start thinking of things as being on a continuum, where really, really probable is on one end, and really, really not probable or improbable is on the other end. So... Having a tool like this and busting it out every time when you have to think critically is really helpful because it allows you to change your position or change your mind based on new information. Um, but how do you do this? And what questions do you ask? Well, that goes back to our three steps that we talked about before. The three steps to figuring out the truth about things. Step one, analyze the source. Step two, analyze the information. Step three, triangulate. Okay, so the source, who is telling you this information and are they a reliable source? What is the information? Are they telling you and how do you evaluate it? And lastly, triangulate. So not just one person saying that this is true, but having verified other sources that also agree. This is the three steps that we look at and we use our probability meter to kind of evaluate all of those different methods. So we go into a lot more detail about this in the show. You should definitely listen to it if you are interested in this kind of thing. But um, we really think this is the best way to help us figure out the truth. And so why is it so important to think scientifically? Well, first of all, that's how we figure out how the world actually works. And the problem is our brains are good, but they're not perfect. And so they have biases and they get influenced and we don't even realize it sometimes. And thinking like a scientist allows you to um, ignore these biases, work around these uh, influences that you may have, and avoid what we call brain traps. Um, and this is how we kind of summarize it on the show. The human brain never stops being curious. And this curiosity led us to building all the things that make up the world we live in. We need to figure out how everything works because our brains hate unknowns. The problem is our brains aren't perfect. And because of this, sometimes we think we're figuring stuff out when we're actually making stuff up. And that's why humans develop science as a way to keep our brains focused on the truth, regardless of what we want to be true. And you can think scientifically too, by taking out your probability meter and using the three steps. Okay, so why is scientific reasoning important? Let's just summarize it this way. Let's be honest. We are living in a world where we are being bombarded by alternative facts and uncertain truths all of the time. But if we all do this, if we all, you know, use a little scientific thinking, work it into our daily lives, then, and give ourselves like this, these thinking nutrients, then maybe we have a chance at arriving at a utopian future, one teaspoon of salt at a time. Thank you. Great. Thanks, Wendy. Thanks, Josh.
Okay, so next up, it's Elijah and Tony from Priority One. Uh, this is our weekly magazine-style show that tackles the week's biggest news and also some updates from the world of Star Trek gaming. So they're going to talk about gaming culture as a model for a utopian society. So, Elijah, Tony. Hello, everyone. As Ken I explained already, we, um, Priority One does a weekly news show that has focuses significantly on gaming, particularly Star Trek Online, which is a massively multiplayer online role-playing game. And for those of you unaware, a massively multiplayer online game gives players an opportunity to not only enjoy the content of a game that's being created, but also to engage with each other, to create friendships, lasting friendships, to create bonds that really are, can sometimes be as important as a bond that you have with a, a family member. Um, so how does that video game culture, how could that lead towards better practices that would lead us towards that utopian future? Tony, you have a few thoughts. So if you're going to play a massively multiplayer online game, you've got to get a mass of players. And how are you going to do that? Well, 10 years ago when Priority One first started, Star Trek Online was a subscription service. You've got to pay to play. Everyone has to have cash to get in to experience the, the culture, to play the adventures, earn the rewards, all that stuff. Well, about the same time that Elijah took over the podcast, Star Trek went free-to-play, which means that anybody could just join the game. As long as you could run the program, you could join the game and play. A, a good game design that way lets you earn all the goodies in the game just by participating. If you show up and put in the time and effort, you can have basically everything that the game has to offer. That sounds pretty great. That kind of sounds like what the ideal is, right? You don't have to pay to chip in to, to actually play the game. If you're willing and committed and want to spend the time you have access to everything the game has to offer. There's an underlying assumption there, though. You have to be able to connect to the game. You have to have the resources, like a computer that can run it, an internet connection that'll handle it. You have to be able to have the physical time and security to enjoy the game. So there's a set of assumptions that people would, you have to kind of gloss over when you call a game free-to-play. And there's some, I think, pretty good analogies here with how the world kind of works. Everyone sort of says, well, you know, just show up and do your very best and golly, you're, you're going to make it big. There's an underlying set of assumptions there. And you heard women at Warp earlier kind of touch on these things about those inequality issues. But the idea is that if we can design the game in such a way that we can help people afford or get to or even physically locate themselves to participate in the game, then I think we'll, it's a, more of a roadmap to the future. It's a game design for getting to Star Trek. But a lot of that starts with physically being able to get to uh, a, a place where you can play. Right. And so that essentially describing that basic income, that basic accessibility to things. But Star Trek Online, or not Star Trek Online, but gaming in general also provides a sort of escapism. Right? It, uh, it protects us from behind the screen to be able to represent ourselves how we want others to see us. Uh, most recently, for instance, I don't know if, uh, how many of you are familiar with the book Ready Player One or saw the movie. One of those, awesome. So, you know, one of the themes being expressed in that book is that players log into this virtual reality world 
and present themselves as a massive ogre or a tiny little Pokemon to experience the game. The point is that when thinking about this, I think about myself, for instance. I am a first-generation Cuban-American. When I log into a game, perhaps my character has that sort of back history to it, but on the other side of the screen, all we're talking about is how to enjoy the game. The other person in that pickup group, the other teammate of mine, doesn't care that I'm Cuban, doesn't care that I'm white or black or Asian or Latinx, doesn't matter. We are there to experience the world and the environment to the best of our ability. And we all started in the exact same spot, in a free-to-play game or a free-to-play download uh, that gave us access to this. Personally, for instance, this is a, a great example of when a community can come together without preconceived notions of one another. And even in Star Trek Online, we had a fleet member pass away. And as a fleet, as a community, we got together and did a memorial service in the game. When Leonard Nimoy passed away, for instance, uh, in Star Trek Online, people masked on Vulcan. It didn't matter who you were or where you were from. You were celebrating the life of this wonderful individual. So what's important to, what's important to take away is that a, a virtual world can provide that avenue to allow you to be who you are without fear of prejudice, persecution, or whatnot. And hopefully, it can lay some groundwork towards that utopian future that we hope to achieve. But that's our time. So thank you very much. Great. Elijah, Tony, thank you very much. All right, so last but certainly not least, we're going to welcome back John Champion, and this time with the addition of Mr. Ken Ray. Uh, together, they are Mission Log and Mission Log Live. Okay, so uh, on a weekly basis, they pick apart Star Trek episodes looking for messages, morals, and meanings, and whether those episodes hold up. Today, they're arguing that how we tell stories is the key to our future. Take it away. In the beginning, it was dark. In the beginning was the word. Once upon a time, there was a little girl named Goldilocks. She went for a walk in the forest. Once upon a time, there were three little girls who went to the police academy. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was a period of civil war. Rebel spaceships striking from a hidden base have won their first victory against the Galactic Empire. Space. The final frontier. There is power in the stories we tell. The stories we choose to tell. If you want proof of that, look to your left. Now look to your right. Yep, you are at a Star Trek convention. And so are the people next to you. Star Trek, a series of stories, had the power to bring you to Las Vegas. For us, and probably for you, it's had the power to do a lot more than that. Let's go further. The chair on which you sit started with a story. The building in which we sit started with a story. The plane or car that you use to get here, the clothes on your back... The money you used to pay for all of it, each of those things started with a series of stories of their own. There's a fantastic story I love uh, from the books, uh, the Illuminatus Trilogy by Robert Shea and Robert Anton Wilson. And it was about how uh, words can be used to destroy a town. 
Um, the department store had a sign that said, thank you for not smoking. And, you know, that's not weird. Because even in the 1970s, people understood, especially in something like a, uh, like a department store, there are places that you weren't allowed to smoke. Um, sign hangs there. Business goes on as usual. And then one day, uh, these sowers of discord, they're actually called discordians, uh, sneak in and they change one word. Instead of it saying, thank you for not smoking, it now says, thank you for not spitting. And this changes things a tiny bit, because people understood, I know why you don't want me to smoke in here, but when they see a sign that says, thank you for not spitting, uh, this implies to them uh, three things. Uh, The first is that they are now in an establishment where somebody has to hang a sign like that. Uh, The second is, um, yeah, that that kind of thing might happen. And the third is that somebody might think that they're the kind of person that would do that kind of thing. And so they uh, quit shopping at that store. And eventually, uh, that store goes out of business, which, of course, has a knock-on effect with the other businesses around it. And pretty soon, all of town is decimated. There is no more downtown because of this one implication, let's say. Um, Not a true story, but I believe that story. I, I believe in the power of that story. It's sort of like the thing... I had a friend one time... Forgive me, I'm going a tiny bit off script. Oh, I had a friend one time who said, um, and he feels bad about this, to this day he feels bad about it, like 30 years later, he was working a shift at a restaurant, there was nobody coming in, they were overstaffed, somebody was going to get sent home, so he went over to one of the other waiters and said, hey man, are you, are you feeling okay? That was it. 30 minutes later, that guy was sick and gone home. It was just the implication, Right? Little things can make a difference. The stories we tell can make a difference. The question I have is, instead of the bad stories, what if we start focusing on the good ones? So every week on Mission Log, we examine stories, and we ask ourselves, and we ask you, what is the heart of what's being told here? What are the morals, meanings, and messages that inspire or challenge the audience? That would be us. And speak to who we are now or who we want to be in the future. Some of those stories are purely for fun, and many of those stories focus on the challenges of living up to who we say we are. Now, there's never a one-way street, and while we may all watch Star Trek, we invite everyone to be a part of Mission Log Live, where we can have this discussion real-time with each other. At the end of the day, the stories that we tell each other examine what it means to be human. So, we can tell stories that are tragic, stories that are comedic, stories that encourage us, and maybe just possibly those stories encourage us to work for a more equitable future. And we should tell them together. So come join us, won't you? Yes. (laughs) Join join us now? Well, no, not right now. No, right now. Okay. All right. Yeah. Hey, welcome back to the stage, Allison Pitt. (laughs) Thanks, John. Thanks, Ken. Let's have a round of applause for uh, John and Ken and also all of the rest of our hosts. Uh, what I'd like to do now is get set up for some questions if anybody has them. And while we're getting everybody back here up on stage, if you have any questions, just come up to the mic and uh, ask away. Here comes someone now. Right, go ahead. How are you doing? Uh, the movie Star Trek First Contact relates to us in the near future after a long, bloody Third World War. Humanity catches the attention of extraterrestrial life, the Vulcans. After this, we're, we're led to assume that this step is history, in history, is what helps humans reevaluate their position in the universe and begin to make changes toward the better. The question that I have is what step 
do you think is the first step? We had many steps, but what do you think is the first step? I think the first step is, oh, what's the best way to say it? Maybe getting past our ego and finally realizing that we're all human and we all have value because somehow in 2019, that's still something we're fighting about. Um, yeah. So I, I, I'm glad that you mentioned first contact because I remember immediately the conversation that we had about that on the show because I love that movie. It's so much fun and there, there are so many great set pieces in it. And then by the time we got to the end of our discussion, I kept thinking the tragedy of that movie is that it's dependent upon war. It's dependent upon the Third World War that we get to the Star Trek future, the future they want to protect and celebrate. And I just thought, oh. Is that really what it takes to actually bind humanity? And I've said before that I, I hope that I live to see the day that we confirm extraterrestrial life. I don't care what it is. I don't care if, it, if it's a, a bacterium somewhere way away, because then it actually says we're not that special, but we can be special when we realize that we're all one, right? More recently, we've been talking about the 50th anniversary of the moon landing, and I felt like that was a great example of the polar opposite of this third world war that actually brings people together because we realized that 50 years ago there was at least one moment that we all got to be as one and look at the moon and, and say, that's us. And I remember hearing uh, uh, in some of the interviews some of the astronauts who, who did that, they said they went all over the world and it wasn't, yay, you did this, it was, yay, we did this. And I, I hope, I don't know what that step is, but I hope that we all live to see one other moment at least that binds humanity that way, not because we went through a slog, not because we went through a war or something like that. The great answer. Thank you. Thank you for your Thank question. You. Right, go ahead. I think a big piece of this future is the sharing of resources, obviously. And I know you, the woman, of the war, woman at war, you guys talked a lot about education and things to that effect. How do we get rid of that acquisition of wealth? That's, that's really at the crux of everything. Think about food, right? We have enough food in the United States to feed the entire world, but yet somehow people go home, go to bed hungry. I, if, I, if I can chime in a second, I think that, um, yes, for instance, this country has an abundance of things, but the problem is, is that we are still looking at people as less than and we need to move away from that. You know, yes, it's great. It would be great to have some sort of event that would unite or on a limited resource that we can share. But the United States has concentration camps right now. And we need to, we need to first acknowledge that no one person deserves less than another when... Thank you. Um, when we have a gross abundance of things. Uh, Greed is a nightmare, and we need to just move forward from that. The income gap would be really nice if we could address that. Just, we have solutions to it. Let's just get on that. Hey, and I, I'm going I'm to jump in here for Shabam real quick. Hi. So Hi. Listen, listen to the newest episode of Shabam that just came out. Yes. The, the connections piece. Yeah, connections. We're, we're connecting the dollar bill to the Starship Enterprise. Yeah. Check it out. And what I loved about that is they make the case that uh, money is just an idea. It's just a thing we all decided one day would be how we assign value to stuff. 
And I, I loved, it sort of blew my mind a little bit because we could actually live in a society that says that uh, you don't need that to make something else more valuable, that we can actually just share our resources. Here you go. Bye. Yeah, thank you just said everything. I don't thank you, John. That was a great answer. <laughs> and I, just very, very quickly, I think we are seeing some change in that. There is a, a growing community of people who are trading services for products. Um, I think, and, and Facebook, of all things, as, as horrible of a place it can be, is, is helping these groups build. There are buy-nothing groups where people just give away stuff they don't need anymore. There's, hey, can somebody tutor my kid? I'll put up a shelf for you. And this, this trade economy is, I think, building back up. It's becoming more popular again. And I, I think we're, we're realizing that money is not everything because maybe it had to get this bad for us to see it. And one thing I go back to over and over again is uh, if I could redo the graduate movie, when the drunk buffoon comes up to young Benjamin, instead of saying, you know, plastics, my boy, plastics, I wish we could redo that and have him come up and say, replicators, my boy, replicators. Because when gold has just as much value as a chemical uh, equation as lead does, or whatever the hell, where it takes all of DS9 seven years to finally figure out what the hell is gold press latinum in a, in a universe of replicators, you know, that will, be a, that will be a great thing to equalizing wealth and all these issues we're talking about too. Great. Thank you, Larry. Thank you for your question. Right. We're running a little bit over time slightly, but I think we have time for two more uh, quick ones. Okay. Uh, so my question is actually for a large group of the panels, because you all kind of hit on one topic, and that is that Things are getting better in a way. We have better technology now than we ever have before. But you talked about, for instance, uh, how to tell if something's true, right? And a part of that is look at multiple sources, right? We talked about, uh, we've all talked about like ideas and how words matter and all that stuff. But we talked about how technology can be good or bad, depending on how it's used. It's not inherently one or the other. But we're also living in an age where we have technology that's being used in ways that, on the surface, seem great. Uh, tailored algorithms, um, high-level predictive algorithms. You know, we can figure out when people are going to quit months before they realize that they're unhappy at work. And these all seem like great things until I can't tell what's true. Because the only answers I'm ever going to get are the ones that are tailored to me. And it's... We've always lived in bubbles because of the lack of communication. And then at the dawn of the internet, it opened up all this communication. But now, because we want it to be easy and accessible, we're letting all these algorithms turn our bubbles into cages. And I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on how we solve that problem. I have one or two quick answers, please. Uh, sorry, I was just going to say, sorry. I totally agree. Like, I, I think this is a problem. We, we get to the point where it's like, I don't want to hear that information. I don't like that information, but I like this. I like that. And then so you build up this, this world that, that you just feel comfortable in. And I, and I feel like what we need to do is feel more comfortable with not knowing things so that you say, okay, well, well what is actually happening? Even if I don't like the answer, you know, let's find out what actually is the case. You know, like, I think we have to be, well, for me, I, I, I try to be less like, seeking out things that are comfortable and more try to find out, okay, well, what, what is actually going on? Corporate transparency would help. And that, that's what I was going to say. Good luck. <laughs> right, great. We'll get there. Great. And, and a, very, a very valuable oh, three words. I don't know. 
Those three words are extremely valuable. Scientific inquiry, uh, political, social inquiry, wherever you go. Saying I don't know is the first step to knowledge. I think we also need to kind of praise that statement. Because right now, that's really looked down upon. Saying you don't know something is a negative, whereas it should be a positive. And and just hitting that point one step further is something that we're all really bad at is being okay with being wrong. Because figuring out what is right is what moves us forward. So we have to be okay with that. We have to, failure has to be part of everything that we do in order to make things better. And not knowing something is the potential for learning something. Right. Uh, So we have time for one more quick question. But before we do that, I just want to remind everyone, um, all of the podcasts that are represented here, you can find at podcasts.rottenberry.com. It's one convenient location. So you can find all of us there. Also, if you'd like to carry on the conversation throughout the weekend, we'll all be uh, available over at the Roddenberry Monolith uh, all weekend. So come and say hi, introduce yourselves. We'd love to hear from you. Please do. Please Uh, do. So, right. Sorry. Final question. Final question. So I'm a scientist, and I understand how thermodynamics runs a universe. We go from high energy states to low energy states, concentrations of things to depauperate situations. I think of, but I don't understand economics. And so I think that is there a viable, and this, this could just be a yes or no answer, is there a viable alternative to what's called a scarcity-based economy? I highly recommend the book Treconomics by Manu Sadia. It's really accessible, and he goes through like what is, how does post-scarcity work in Star Trek and how this relates to our daily life. Um, I don't know that I can quite do it justice, um, but, uh, you know, it's we're distributing things highly unequally, and to, to an extent that why we want to talk about inequality is that all our scientific advances are being the benefits are not equal now um, and things like the technology that you were mentioning so that's why they tie together but yeah book, book rec thank you very much great thanks everybody. thanks everybody thank you all for coming and we'll see you later on through the weekend podcast.roddenberry.com The Roddenberry Podcast Network